the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. It reads like a laundry list that could have been created by the devil himself. Terrorist attacks, mass shooting attacks on campuses, political strife, racism, economic instability, moral decline, church attendance decline, certainly true here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it has to make you pause and wonder as we take account of what's going on not only on the the stage um, morally, spiritually, politically across the globe, but certainly here at home, exactly what's going on. Where is the church? Where should we as Christians be in addressing all of this? Because we know ultimately the insights and the key to not only what's wrong, but what the solution is, is ultimately found in Scripture. A very special conference coming to the San Francisco Bay Area this weekend. We'll give you more details on that. But uh, meanwhile, I'd like to invite into our conversation tonight Pastor Andrew Chavaria. He is pastor at Elkhart Church of Christ, a U.S. Army veteran, co-founder of Liberty Cannon Media Group, the executive director of the Truth and Liberty Foundation, speaks all across the country in the topic of uh, culture, God, government, and where our nation is today, where it's headed spiritually, and most importantly, where is the church we need to be? And Andrew, great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, We appreciate the opportunity. Boy, you know, kind of uh, taking the temperature, so to speak, morally and spiritually of where America is at today, it, it would seem that not only are we in trouble, But many would wonder, where does the church stand in all of this? I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that the mainstream church in America seemed to be supercharged politically. That certainly was true in the 1980s. We were on the cutting edge of of addressing many moral and spiritual issues, uh, both from the pulpit as well as uh, from a political standpoint. But it seems as if in in recent years there's kind of been an atrophying of not only the church's um, influence in the governance of our nation, but, but even in terms of just our our overall influence in, in the day-to-day uh, life in America. Why is that? You know, I, I think it boils down to, to uh, the simple aspect of turnover. Uh, when you think about, and what I mean by that is we've lost some of the wise and old leadership that we had in the 80s, and we've now turned to individuals that grew up in the 60s and the 70s, those that grew up during the sexual revolution, and uh, those that grew up in a day and age where, uh, quite frankly, uh, the theory of evolution and all of these things during the space race kind of rude the day in the classroom. And um, quite simply, I think Abraham Lincoln put it best. He said the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. 
And uh, we now see what happens when you remove God. I mean, when you start about 1965, uh, 1965, we start removing God from the classroom. We start, uh, we start uh, going, going progressively through the years. We remove the Bible from classrooms. We remove prayer from classrooms. Um, then we start getting into the 70s, and now abortion becomes the norm with Roe v. Wade. Uh, then you get into the 90s, homosexuality uh, gets on the platform, and uh, now you get into the 2000s, and it's, it's the law of the land. Well, how did all of this happen? Well, it happens because people that grew up already sensitizing themselves to this aspect of life kind of just just stay back. And, and, you know, like I said, I mean, Abraham Lincoln said it best. This is now the philosophy of our government. And we now live in a place and time where um, I think, and this is just my personal philosophy, it's one of the reasons that I travel the country talking about this stuff. Um, I think that it's also weighed heavy on our pulpits. Our pulpits aren't the same anymore. They're so watered down and uh, preaching a, a, you know, they're, they're basically giving people a stick of cotton candy when they walk through the door and there's no truth being preached anymore. So really in, in a large sense, then this is sort of the product of erosion. I mean, the, the old saying that yeah. the drip becomes the trickle that turns into the stream that becomes the river. And before you know it, it's cut the Grand Canyon. And in some respects, while we can't point to any singular event that um, is at the center of this. It's many of the events. It, it, it's, uh, you know, kicking God out of the classroom. Uh, you know, dare we put up the Ten Commandments to encourage students to do things like, I don't know, not steal, not kill, not lie, obey their parents, things of that sort. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, then, you have a combination of what's taking place not only at, at the institutional level, within public education, certainly within right. higher education, the body politic, then we add to that. I think you're right. Some Some levels of frustration in the pulpit in America today that, and certainly this is not meant to be a, a blanket accusation, Pastor, no. but there are some pastors, I think, that would conclude that, you know, if I get up there and I start preaching sin, salvation, sanctification, start really talking about the tough, serious stuff that we see in Scripture, there'll be nobody there on Sunday morning, and, you know, we've got to pay an electric light bill, and I have a salary that has to be paid, and, you know, we need to put new carpeting in the church, so I'm going to have to go a little bit easier on all of this, and as a result, we end up watering down the effectiveness of the gospel to the point where it has no effect. Right. And, and to me, when, when that happens, and, and I mean, it, it's textbook. You see churches like this popping up everywhere, um, you know, multi-million dollar buildings. They have the whole, you know, the whole band, the lights, the smoke, everything like that, uh, to draw people to come in and do those things. And the sermon is just so fluffy that you just really don't get anything out of it. But I, I think what that is a product of is that's a product of Christians who have lost their identity. You know, when we, when we start, and here's what I mean by that. So many people think that you go to church. And here's the thing, and this is coming from a guy that stands up almost every single Sunday behind a pulpit somewhere. If not my home church, I'm somewhere preaching and teaching the gospel. So, so just, you know, <laughs> stick with me when I say it, because I'm kind of talking to myself. But you don't come to church. You go to worship God. The Bible actually teaches Christians that we are the church. We're the ones that are called out. And when we get that in our mind, when we start realizing that that is our identity, we are the church, and we stop going to church and we start going to worship God, it doesn't matter what the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, the reverend, the minister, I don't care what you call it, it doesn't matter what he says. If it's true, you're there to worship God and you're going to accept it. So then the real distinction here is the difference between going to church and being the church. Yep. And that's why we are where we are today. And the, the catalyst that, that this has happened, the reason that this has happened, 
is because of the pulpit. Um, you know, Charles Finney is probably one of my favorite characters during the American Revolution. He was a he was a cleric during the American Revolution, and he actually says, I mean, and I'm just going to kind of quote this pretty quick, but he says, "Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours." In a great degree. Mm. Listen to what he says next, though. He says, "If there is co- if there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it." He says, "If the press, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church grows degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it." He goes on and he says, "If the world loses interest in religion." That's key right now. That's you, you talked about in the introduction that so many people, even in the Bay Area, to a low attendance uh, in churches. If people lose interest in religion, he says the pulpit's responsible for it. But I want you to see what happens next, because this is what we're talking about, the climate of where we are as a nation right now. He says if Satan rules in the halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundation of our government is ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Then he concludes, he says, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. The reason that Charles Finney could speak so boldly that way is because when we declared our independence, when we declared our independence, the king did not attribute George Washington. He did not attribute the Continental Army. He did not attribute the militia and the Minutemen. The, per, the, the people that they attributed American independence to, that our enemy attributed American independence to, was a group that he called the Black Robe Regiment. It was the pastors and the preachers of the day. He said it's because they're preaching truth and they're preaching liberty in Christ and they're preaching what we don't want them to preach, and that's where America spurned its freedom from. The pulpit was responsible for American freedom. Well, ironically enough, uh, you know, even a a stranger to our land, a visitor, uh, de Tocqueville, made the exact same observation in terms of the impact and importance of what takes place at the pulpit. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we have to recognize, and when we talk about things such as a moral code, that the Bible is the standard setter, but it is the church that is the standard bearer. And if we're not willing to bear the standard that Scripture sets for us and make that proclamation from the pulpit and live it out in the pews, uh, then I think the observations of, of, of Finney, as, as uncomfortable as they may be, are perhaps sadly bang on. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Our special guest in this segment of the program is Pastor Andrew Chavarria as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the issues here perhaps at hand is we're sort of um, doing some quarterbacking and analysis of what's happened in the the moral and spiritual decline in America in the last generation, maybe going on two generations now. One of, I think, the issues uh, that is contributory to all of this uh, is the perception, real or otherwise, that there is a tremendous amount of disunity within the body of Christ. Now, let me hasten to add, some people say, well, you know, that's the problem with doctrine. Doctrine divides. Well, doctrine should divide. Uh, There is a reason why Christ even himself talked about separating the wheat from the chaff. So good, sound doctrine is critically important. That's not the kind of disunity I'm talking about. It's the sense of 
everybody kind of their own corner doing their own thing, um, not not giving much concern to a sense of, of cooperation with one mind, one heart, one spirit, uh, one goal of what Christ has called us to do. Uh, to love our God, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and, of course, to go about uh, the Great Commission and sharing the gospel in all the world. I think the effectiveness of that really is compromised when there is a tremendous sense of disunity about the body in many respects just because we're too busy doing our own thing or we feel uh, intimidated because somebody may be a little bit more successful in one arena or another than we are. And so, you know, rather than working together, we shy away from it because we feel uh, a bit intimidated. Uh, what about that perspective, uh, Pastor Chavarria? Is this issue of, of a lack of unity contributory to this problem? Problem. You know, I, I think it is. I really think it is. I think the modern American church uh, today is so disjointed that that's why we can't find a foothold um, in making America what Ronald Reagan called that shining city on a hill. Um, you know, and we're, we're so disjointed to the part there is, you're right, sound doctrine is needed. I mean, you know, one of the ways that I break it down for, and this kind of makes it real for people, is the Bible took about approximately 1,600 years to write. It was 40 different authors, 300 years between the two Testaments where God didn't reveal himself to anyone. Then you have those 40 different guys that you have to talk about that didn't ever cross paths, but the central message is Jesus. And God took a lot of time to preserve all of that for us. And uh, when you think about it that way, you know, it's really easy to say, you know, God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And one of the things that God says in the Word, in the book of 1 Corinthians, is uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, let there be no divisions among you. You know, I'm a part of a group, uh, it's called the Radicals, and uh, we all have different, quote-unquote, denominational backgrounds. Everybody has a different denominational background. Uh, but we all agreed, and everybody's a Christian leader or a pastor or a preacher somewhere, but we started this group together. We meet every Tuesday night uh, on, a, on a video platform, and we all started meeting together, and, and among us there's millions of people that follow us on social media and, and, uh, and come to our churches and hear us preach. We all agreed that it was time in America to break down the walls of denominationalism and to start being Christians. That's it. The Bible doesn't, you know, it's funny, the Bible doesn't mention the word, and I know this might step on some people's toes, but if you want to hear and understand more about what I'm going to say, we'll talk about the event that I'm talking about later. But the Bible never says Catholic. The Bible never says Pentecostal. The Bible never says Baptist. The Bible never says Methodist. The Bible calls those that follow after Jesus Christians. And when we start following Jesus and we start deciding to be Christians— Man, that's unity. That's oneness. We have the doctrine. The doctrine is the Word of God. That's the Bible. We have that. And if we can stick to that and we just call ourselves Christians, we will turn, not not the nation, we'll turn the world upside down. Of course, one of the other challenges I think that's contributory that goes hand in hand with that, and not only that sense of, of competition as opposed to cooperation, but also the fact that sometimes there's so much of an emphasis on on doing as opposed to being, and I think that goes to the heart of another big issue, and that is just a, a lack of really understanding what true discipleship <laughs> really 
looks like. People think I show up to church on Sunday morning, drop a couple of bucks in the offering plate. Uh, you know, whenever there's a bake sale, I always be sure to contribute, and they think that therefore qualifies them uh, as a quote-unquote Christian. But they've never been right. through a discipleship process. They don't know how to pray. They don't know how to read the Word. They've never shared their faith with another person. Right. Right. We just basically convert people, and then we throw them to the wolves and expect them to be mature Christians, and it's just never going to work. Yeah, when it doesn't work out, then we wonder why. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's never worked out that way. And that's what we do, honestly, and that's what we're doing to our young people today. And if you look, um, we're losing probably about 70%, 60 to 70% of our youth groups leave the church and don't come back by the time they hit college age. We're losing them to sec- we're losing them to secular progressivism. Mm. And uh and, and that that's a big that's a staggering number. Sixty to seventy percent. In the churches of Christ it's higher than that. It's seventy five to eighty percent. Um but I you know like I said I preach for I'll, I'll preach at any church they want me to come and speak at. Uh but but here's the thing. Here's the thing with that and it, it's it's very simple. It's very simple because I, I mentioned the word identity. I'm a, I'm a big talker when it comes to identity, and um, one of the things that people like to pawn off now, and you've probably heard it said, um, people probably said it. I know I've said it. We tell people all the time, "Hey, I'm just I'm, I'm a sinner just like you," and and that's true to a degree. But I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm saved, and and the reason that we tell people I'm a sinner just like you is because of the next phrase that we say after that. We tell people, because you know, look, man, all you have to do is follow Jesus. That's it. All you have to do is follow Jesus. But Paul, you know, going back to the book of First Corinthians, in First Corinthians eleven, uh, Paul says, "Follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ." You see, we, and Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew twenty-eight and Mark sixteen, he tells us to go and make disciples. You know, so we have a responsibility as Christians to be an example and to disciple, teach them in the ways in which to follow after Jesus, and we don't want to do that anymore, so we just tell people, hey, I'm a sinner just like you, all you have to do is follow Jesus, because that takes the whole, don't, don't follow me, don't, but here's the thing, me as a Christian, as a church leader, I want people to follow me, I want people behind me, because that means that there's somebody behind me to catch me when I fall, that means that there's somebody behind me to lift me up when I'm down, you know, so it's okay to teach somebody, and, and we don't want to be vulnerable, but you have to be vulnerable when it comes to following Jesus, because it's an ultimate act of submission. Well, moreover, that whole notion of iron sharpening iron, that seems yeah. to be a component that's sort of missing. And I think that's also been uh, part of the, the, the fallout of the so-called megachurch movement, and that is that it becomes so impersonal, so disconnected, that there's not that that human touch, that intimacy, that iron sharpening iron that yeah. Scripture talks of that is ne- necessary to take place for, I think, true discipleship to form. Yeah. Now, that said, let's talk about um, this um, spiritual renewal weekend. Give us details, if you would, Andrew. Yeah, normally when I, I go and speak somewhere, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, one of the things that I, that I want to do over the, over three days, I'm going to be I'm going to do six lessons in three days um, on being one. So it doesn't matter what your faith background is. You don't have to be a member of the Church of Christ to come to this event. If you if you have if you're going to a community church, if you're going to it doesn't matter what kind of church you're going to. We want you to come to this event because here's the thing is um, and here's what I'm going to be focusing on in Ephesians chapter two, beginning at verse twelve. The, the, the writer says the word, he uses the first word, the word is remember. So this is something for all of us that we all have to remember, that you one time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. We've all been there. We've all not had this hope. Well, you know what God did give us? God did give us hope. In verse 19 of that same chapter, he says, So then now you're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're a fellow citizen with the saints and are in God's household. If you and I, and it doesn't matter where we came from, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter how much money we make, what we wear, how much clothes, you know, what we drive, none of that's going to matter. If you are willing to follow Jesus and make Jesus your identity, you're not going to be a stranger anymore, and you're going to be a citizen of God's household. And what we want to talk about over these three days is renew our spirits to be one household, this sense of, of the, the, the sense of cooperation, the sense of working together, the, the sense of building each other up, because only when we start to do that will we start building our nation back up. Andrew, if folks want to get more information about this, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, AndrewShavaria.com. It's, uh, it's a long last name. I know C-H-A-V-A-R-R-I-L-L-A. Andrew, before that, AndrewShavaria.com. Um, or find me on Twitter. There's a link straight to my, my website on Twitter. It's at Church Patriot. It's really easy. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll be able to find my Facebook, my website, and all the times and the dates and everything are listed there. And, of course, you know, even if you just Google it, you know, uh, <laughs> bowing to the difficulty of your last name, I yeah. found if you just Google Andrew and just get into Shava, R-I-L, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll find him that way, too. Or, again, the Twitter at, at Church Patriot. Well, Andrew, we appreciate the time and the insights and encourage listeners, hey, this is a good way to get a deeper understanding about what Christ wants for the church when he prayed that we would all be one. What does not only that that look like, but what does it mean in terms of being able to increase the effectiveness and the impact of the church on the world around us? As I said earlier, while the Bible is the standard setter, the church is the standard bearer. Our thanks to Pastor Andrew Chavarria for being with us tonight on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Perhaps you read the story in the news, although frankly it was buried fairly deeply, word that the state of California has now officially dispensed with exit exams for high school students. That means that any student attending public high school no longer needs to take and demonstrate a level of proficiency as they complete their high school career. Heretofore, some 40,000 California high school students did not receive their diplomas. They will, though, however, under this new law. Essentially, what does it mean? It means that public education at certain levels is getting so desperate that they're now relaxing standards simply to graduate students. That's got to break the heart of any parent. Parents, I think, at the end of the day, want to make sure that their child's scholastic career is not only a pleasant one, but one that has a tremendous sense of both academic and spiritual purpose. Well, for the spiritual, in California schools, that was outlawed many years ago. And on the academic side, well, news tells us they continue to shirk from their responsibilities. So what are the alternatives? Joining me now is the principal of King's Academy in Sunnyvale, Principal Scott Meadows. And um, Scott, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. What of this idea that suddenly, since we're having a difficult time bringing the students up to the standards, we just simply eliminate the standards? Really? Uh, you, you know, Craig, I think that's um, a sad commentary on the public school system. Uh, again, I think the idea of not having X exams and 
making sure students have the knowledge they need to have to graduate is, is a very sad commentary in today's society. Um, but that's not the case for us at the King's Academy. Uh, all of our kids would be able to pass the X exam with flying colors. In fact, not just pass the exit exam, but isn't there a higher percentile of students that matriculate through King's Academy that at the end of the day are able to go on to two- and four-year colleges and universities? Absolutely. Virtually 100% of our kids go on to uh, college, whether it's two years or four-year colleges, and we have an extensive profile of uh, quite well-known universities that they're going to. Our average ACT score uh, for the composite for this past year was 27, and the state composite was 22.8, uh, and our SAT scores as well were uh, much, much higher uh, than what the state average would be. And I guess part of this is not only demonstrative of the dedication to academic excellence, but I've got to believe from a Christian perspective, knowing that the spiritual component of a child's well-being and and nurturing has got to make a difference, and that certainly is a a major aspect of what is provided to your students at King's Academy. Talk to me about that. Well, absolutely. The King's Academy, the uh, spiritual component, is one of three components to our mission statement, which is uh, all about academic excellence, servant leadership, and enduring relationships. So, for the King's Academy, we want to educate the whole child, including the spiritual component. Uh, so our school includes uh, biblical studies as part of the graduation requirement. All of our students go on mission trips each year, uh, required to have 35 hours community service, which they satisfy that when they go uh, down to Mexico in their uh, freshman, sophomore years and build houses uh, for the, the, the people that can't afford them in Mexico. Uh, we go on mission trips to Guatemala, to Japan, uh, to, to all over the world. Uh, we've been going to places, Costa Rica, Ecuador, and we've established relationships with missions on these foreign fields. So our kids are exposed to the needs of others, uh, and they learn about serving others, which is critical to us, and then they uh, build these relationships with their, their, their peers, with the faculty, uh, and administration, and they come back to serve often on our campus. So it sounds like the the viewpoint, the perspective of addressing both spiritual development, mental or um, intellectual development, and and body as well, it really encompasses this three point approach at King's Academy. That's that's correct. We try to approach all aspects of uh, the physical condition, uh, but we also do it in conjunction with uh, the home the church and the school. So we don't believe that it's just our job to educate. We believe that also is coordinated with the home uh, and other outside entities that these uh, students work with. So, so a partnership, uh, really, in that sense? Uh, absolutely. We partner with parents. That's what we say all the time. Um, so we, we think it's important to, uh, you know, physically we have wonderful uh, programs for the kids in sports, you know, over 21 different sports that they can play on the varsity level, JV level, and even the junior high level. Our kids participate in football and basketball and baseball and softball and swimming and all the things you can think of, uh, and my favorite, golf. Uh, so we do that and help the physical condition. But then the, the academic is, is very, very important. You know, kids want to get into good colleges, and parents want to make sure their kids are prepared to go to a UC school or to go to Stanford or to go to Berkeley. And we've got kids in all those locations. And so it's important to get them academically challenged. But if they go off to college and they don't have their spiritual condition, uh, fed and ready to be strong uh, 
in the collegiate environment, then, then parents are concerned. So we take a lot of time uh, at the school through biblical integration and uh, instruction and chapel services. And every fall we go on retreats with the kids and take them off just to spend time working on the spiritual condition. And it pays off. Indeed, and and certainly as we alluded to in in the opening moments of our conversation, it's one thing to prepare a student to pass a test. It's another thing to prepare a student for life, and it sounds like that's a bigger perspective taken by King's Academy, that it's it's much broader than simply saying, have we stuffed enough information into their minds to get them to matriculate from here to a two- or four-year college? And I would imagine toward that end, um, there's a strong emphasis on college preparatory curriculum at King's Academy? It is. I mean, King's Academy, is a, it's a Christ-centered college prep school. It serves over 950 students in grades 6 to 12 in Sunnyvale. Uh, we focus on the academics. We've, uh, like I said, we, we have uh, uh, added AP classes to our classes now. We have over 20 AP classes. Uh, our average score on the AP exams last year was 3.83. Uh, 88% of our students that took the exam passed with a 3, 4, or 5. Um, 64% with a 4 or 5. So excellent scores in all those type areas from the academic college prep end, and our you know, the end result is where do kids go to college? You know, are they getting into good schools? And we've had kids get into Stanford and Berkeley, uh, UCLA, USC every single year. Uh, kids are going off to these really good schools, uh, several Ivy League schools, and um, so they go there. But they, a lot of them also choose to go to uh, private religious colleges. And we're just as proud of those kids that choose to go into Biola, Pepperdine, Baylor, uh, some fine academic institutions that are also Christian in origin. Now, for the benefit of listeners, I understand that you have your final open house of the year coming up this Saturday, December the 2nd. The event will be in your theater at 11 a.m. Give us more details, if you would. So, yes, the open house uh, at 562 North uh, Britton Avenue in Sunnyvale uh, is a great opportunity for parents to come uh, hear from the principal and several of uh, the key administrators about the important things we do at King's Academy. We'll talk about the mission and vision of the school. We'll talk about uh, the academics. And then we take a break and give all the parents a tour of the facilities and then have they have an opportunity to meet staff members at individual tables to talk to the history professors, the English professors, and the different departments if they want to get more answers. So we're from 11 to 1. Uh, with this open house, and it's a great opportunity to find out more about King's Academy. Where can they go for more information? Well, they can go to our website at www.tk.org, and that's tk.org, or they can call the school at 408-481-9900, and they can get more information both ways. And again, the telephone number is area code 408-481-9900. That's 408-481-9900, or online at tka.org. Think of the King's Academy, tka.org. Our thanks to Principal Scott Meadows for being with us today, and um, thanks again so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. The final open house of the year at King's Academy is this Saturday, December the 2nd. It begins precisely at 11 a.m. in their theater, and it'll end about 1 o'clock with lunch provided. To get more information, go online to tka.org. That's the King's Academy, tka.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
On today's edition of the program, we've got a very special guest in studio. He's kind of a boomerang, a boomerang in the sense that he began life in the San Francisco Bay Area, wound up in the center of the country, eventually ministered for quite a number of years on the East Coast, and has now bounced all the way back to the San Francisco Bay Area. He is Pastor Herman Hamilton, founder and senior pastor at New Beginnings Community Church of Mountain View. And Pastor Hamilton, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you for the privilege of being here with you. Now, you've got to tell us a bit of the story, that you're sort of the boomerang kid. <laughs> yeah, we'll I, I've never you. thought about it that way, but that's a, that's a wonderful way of describing you, it. <laughs> uh, you were born here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yes, I was. I was. I was, I was born. Uh, I was the fourth of four kids uh, born um, uh, early 60s. Uh, kind of shocking to say that, but that's actually when I came around. And um, when I uh, was about six months of age, I broke out with infotagal rash in my uh, head, and uh, so did my sister uh, next to me, and the doctor gave us the right medicine, uh, diagnosed it correctly, and uh, she got better, I got worse, and uh, went back, he figured just doubled the dosage, and my uh, mom, uh, all she knew was that her six-month-old baby boy was just gouging his scalp, so she covered my head with bandages one day. She unwrapped it to discover that I had been allergic to the medicine that had actually mm-hmm. helped to heal my sister. And so it literally cooked my scalp, um, and she just unwrapped layers of skin. And They rushed me to San Francisco General. Uh, while they were frantically working on my head, uh, they spilled stuff in both eyes, damaging both of my eyes. And my heart stopped beating, so I'm told, because of the trauma. But, uh, you know, I had a praying grandmother in the hall, and... Um, Long before I knew who Jesus was and is, he knew what he wanted to do with me. And so he spoke, and the doctors did what they do, and I'm here to talk about it all these many years later. So not only the boomerang kid, but a miracle baby at that. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And I stayed in the hospital for a year, literally, in that day and time, uh, because they had to perform skin grafts to kind of reconstruct my scap. And... um, and I was growing, so I had to do it in stages. So I literally stayed in the hospital for one year. When I got out, my parents had divorced. My dad had disowned me, and my mom had taken deathly ill. Uh, no one wanted to keep me because I was still pretty sickly. And my grandaunt, who lived in Louisiana, Cushana, Louisiana, a little small town north of Louisiana, said, if you can get him to me, I'll keep him. Wow. And uh, my grandaunt, this is a fascinating story, she had... Uh, been praying to have children for years and ultimately told she couldn't and she'd helped to raise my mother through some very traumatic teenage years and so my grandaunt was just being generous and uh, so they got me to Cushana, Louisiana and I stayed there a few years till my mom could get back on her feet when she came back uh, she made the courageous decision to leave me with my grandaunt and let her and my grandaunt was married to a Baptist minister and to let the two of them raise me as their own child. uh, You spent your formative years growing up in a part of the country that was still feeling a lot of the strife, uh, not only at the height of the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. but to a degree there's kind of a a bad reputation, so to speak, in that part of Louisiana. You're about an hour outside of Shreveport. Absolutely. That particular town that you grew up in um, had a reputation. Absolutely. uh, Particularly in relationship to some... Of violence and unrest that was post 
Civil War that mm-hmm. continued in. What was it like growing up in that kind of an environment, contrasting that to the difference that we see in the San Francisco Bay Area? Absolutely. Well, you know, my class, my uh, first grade class, which was 1970, we were the first integrated class in the history of Cushata and Red River Paris. Huge amount of drama uh, around that. And uh, the great success story is that when I graduated in 1982, that class made it all the way through. Uh, needless to say, everything was looked at through the lens of race. Uh, early on in my first, I don't know, until maybe the sixth, seventh grade, we used to have to do everything. Uh, we had a black homecoming queen. We had a white homecoming queen. We had, it was a black and white version of everything uh, as people were trying to make the transition. So it had its challenges, its complexities, but what I really like to always share is that I started off in special education, partly because um, I was, uh, had some learning deficiencies in math, uh, although I started first grade reading on a fifth grade level, uh, but mainly because as a scarred kid, I was acting out horrendously. And one of the ways that they dealt with you back then was you'd more likely end up in special education if you were a kid of color who was acting out tremendously in class. And I had an African-American teacher for two years who recognized that I was uh, gifted uh, and um, let me help her teach the class, Mm. reading and stuff. Third grade, I had a white teacher, Ms. Gahagan, who recognized that I was gifted, that I was in the wrong place. She went to bat for me and fought for me and got me out of, into a mainstreaming process. And uh, that has always helped to kind of define my understanding of race. started really early uh, of uh, just understanding that you just can't label people because of uh, the color of their skin or the history that you're familiar with. And uh, that set me on an amazing course all the way through eighth grade. I was in some form or another of mainstreaming. Uh, and then I met the Lord personally in the eighth grade and really changed my life. Looking back, does it surprise you that the kid from Cushetta, Louisiana, that was not of your own will, attending special ed classes later on in adult life, becomes an adjunct professor at, at, at um, uh, Harvard University and Gordon Cromwell. I mean, amen, amen. <laughs> talk about God's grace. It shows that God can do anything with anybody. <laughs> but it is, it is surprising, and it is awesome, and it is all the glory goes to God. And an enormous amount of credit goes to my grand-aunt and grand-uncle who poured the best years of the second half of their lives into trying to raise me. And they had a really tough time. I mean, all the way up through the eighth grade, I always said that um, uh, I got into as much trouble as I could find. And when I ran out of trouble, I created trouble. <laughs> and, uh, and so they, they struggled through those tough years with me, praying and and uh, feeding me God's word and challenging me and loving me and disciplining me. And uh, God used all of that to uh, really turn my life into a miracle. Does it also give you perspective in terms of ministry? And, and I ask that question, I, I think of the story of Franklin Graham, for example, yes. son of Billy Graham. Here's this internationally known evangelist, Bible teacher, well-respected on every continent, and yet Franklin Graham was nothing but a leather-wearing, motorcycle-riding, cigarette-smoking, booze-drinking troublemaker for so many of his early formative years. No doubt a sense of rebellion against Dad, and then you fast-forward 40-something years, and now he's running the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Absolutely. Well, it is a reminder that, you know, 
that's why I just believe so much in Jesus. At the end of the day, uh, the heart of the gospel is that because of what Jesus has done on Calvary's cross, uh, shedding and a pouring out of his life uh, to give us a reprieve, to pay the price for all the things that fill our lives with shame and guilt, uh, he pays the price of that. And then he says to you, says to me, uh, if you will trust me and give me what's left of your life, I'll take your misery and turn it into a miracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my story. That's my story. And uh, that's really at the heart of my passion. It's the heart of what we do at the church. We are trying to reach people who feel far from God with that extraordinary message that Jesus literally can change. I mean, Jesus changed. When I say changed my life, I'm not just talking about in an in a interior spiritual way. Uh, which absolutely was the case. But uh, in every way that I can think of, uh, um, spiritually and uh, economically and academically and just socially, um, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jesus. If you've just joined our conversation, today in studio is the founding pastor of New Beginnings Community Church. Pastor Herman Hamilton is with us today. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation right after this. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 